0: We have come to the important part of Mark's gospel as all has been funneling to these final couple of chapters leading us to the sacrifice of Jesus. As chapter 14 of Mark opens, it really begins to give you the foreshadowing of the impending doom that is about to happen. It's two days before the Passover feast. This is two days before Jesus is going to be handed over and crucified. There's only two days left. And along with that, you notice that it says in verse 1 of of Mark 14 that what we have are the Jewish leaders now conspiring together to get Jesus killed, to arrest Him by stealth and kill Him. But verse 2 tells us they have a particular concern. You see, during the Passover, that was one of the feasts, Where you had all the male Jews that would have to return to the temple and return to Jerusalem. And so it's at this time of year that you would have Jerusalem doubling or tripling its population. And the concern that the leaders have is if we have Jesus killed now with all of these people who are here, many of them believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior that we've been looking forward to, they know they're going to be in trouble. And so you'll notice that's why it says, they say, it can't be during the Passover feast, otherwise there's going to be an uproar. We're going to have a riot on our hands if we do it at that time. So everything needs to be done by stealth and in their minds, not during the Passover to keep from a riot happening. That's important to have in mind as we go through what I think are about five lessons left in the Gospel of Mark and looking at the scenes and how they are to unfold. What now takes place in this next section is really a description of preparation is that we're going to notice two individuals who are preparing for Jesus and preparing for this event. As was just read for us in the first nine verses there, we see that Jesus is in Bethany. Bethany is nearby Jerusalem. You may recall when you study the Gospels that when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, He will always stay in Bethany. Bethany is the hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so that's a great place to stay and then go into Jerusalem, come back to Bethany. On this occasion, you will notice that He's in the house of Simon, who is a leper. Obviously, since we have a whole crowd of people who are at this Meal. He is a healed leper at this point. Otherwise, it would have been unlawful for any of the people of the town to be at that meal sitting there with him. He would have been deemed unclean and no one would have been with him. And so you have then this little bit of understory that Jesus is in the home of Simon. Perhaps the healing just had happened or it happened in prior days. And here they are around the table and they are eating their meal together. And a woman now comes in. A woman comes in and she has something in her hands that's extremely expensive. She has this alabaster flask of ointment perfume made of pure nard. And she takes this object and she breaks it and pours the contents upon the head of Jesus. And you can imagine as she's doing this, you have everybody here at the table. Verse 4 says some of them are just indignant. They're upset at what they've just seen. And they begin to speak amongst themselves and say, why would somebody waste that kind of expensive ointment like that? Who would waste that kind of perfume? That is expensive perfume. And here you just dumped it on this man's head and now it's completely gone. In fact, they state it could have been sold and given to the poor. And that was a common thing you did at Passover. Was often you would give to the poor during the Passover. And they're making that remark since here we are on the first day of this unleavened well, on the side, two days away from the feast of unleavened bread. This could have been used for that to get a sense of how expensive this ointment and perfume is. You may recall that one denarius is one day's wage. So 300 denarii is a whole year's wage because you don't work Saturday and Sunday typically, so strip those days out. You are at one year's salary. So please just in your mind imagine how much you make in one year. And you just poured it in five seconds on Jesus' head. 40000 50000 60000 $70,000 dollars. In a moment, is now gone. And that's what they are now doing. And notice the text even says at the end of verse 5 they scold her. What are you doing? Are you mad? Who would do such a thing? Who would blow $50,000 like that in a few seconds? What are you thinking? Do something profitable with it. Do something good. Think of all the good you could have done with that money. You just dropped one year's wages in a matter of moments on this man's head. And you notice that Jesus says in verse 6, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then remarks, you can do good to the poor at any time. But notice what you said at the end of verse 7, but you will not always have me. And I think verse 8 is very important. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She has an awareness about things she realizes that this is an opportunity to be with Jesus. This is an opportunity to show love and devotion to the Savior. She recognizes what Jesus has been saying for a very long time, repeated over and over again, that He's coming to Jerusalem, He's going to be handed over, He's going to be betrayed, He's going to be arrested, He's going to be killed. And while even the disciples did not have a full grasp of it, they at least according to John's Gospel had enough of a grasp of if we go to Jerusalem, we're going to die. Let's all go to Jerusalem so that we may die with Him, Thomas says. To be in Jerusalem is absolute danger. And know that this is trouble. And here is a woman who has a grasp of this. And just notice... The heart that she has that Jesus is proclaiming in verse 9. I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She has not held anything back. Whatever she could do, that's what she's going to do. And this is her moment to be in the presence of Jesus a moment to be able to express some lavish love and wonderful devotion to the Savior. And so she does this. I'd like to just think about for a moment really why she does that. We're going to cross that idea a couple of times in this lesson. Why would she do this? You know, why, why not just spend it on yourself? You know, you could go buy yourself a new camel with that kind of money. I mean, what, what are you doing in that kind of thing? What Jesus puts his finger on is she seems to have a spiritual awareness that nobody else in the room has. She understands that this is a final moment. This is her chance. And she really wants to seize an opportunity to be able to express her love for Jesus. Those at the table seem to fail to comprehend the significance of the mission. They don't understand what lies ahead. They don't realize that we are just a matter of hours before Jesus is going to be taken from their midst. But Jesus indicates she has an awareness. She has such an understanding that Jesus says, leave her alone. She knows what she's doing. She's done, verse 6, a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing that she has done to seize the opportunity and honor Jesus. What Jesus says is what she has done has been appropriate for my mission. I want you to think about that for a minute. Notice Jesus does not come in and go, yeah, you're right, that was really wasteful. You really should have gone and used that money in a better way. You know, it really wasn't thoughtful. You know, Jesus says, what she did was right. What she did was right. A beautiful thing. Leave her alone. Don't scold her. Don't trouble her. What she has done is magnificent. In fact, listen to it. We'll cross back to this idea at the end. He says, "Not this is so magnificent That whenever the gospel is proclaimed, what she did is going to be proclaimed as well. Wow. You know, you think there'd be a lot of things you would tie to the gospel message. And he says, this is one thing you tie to it. What she did will be proclaimed with the gospel everywhere in the world. Hold that idea in your mind for a moment. Notice the contrast in verse 10. After seeing this display of love and devotion, verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. I want you just to be shocked or stunned amazed for a moment is in the room with Jesus and the 12 and witnessing this whole thing happening and the beautiful devotion leave her alone what she's done is a beautiful thing she understands that she only has me for a few moments and the very next breath is Judas gets up to betray Jesus such a startling shift In that movement there. In one moment, here is this beauty of devotion and love. And at the very next moment, we have Judas who is promised money. And now what he is going to do is he is going to look for an opportunity to be able to betray Jesus. What is interesting already in the setting of contrasts, is that her name is going to be proclaimed with the gospel. What she did and how she did this great devotion will always be proclaimed with the gospel. It will never be forgotten. Oh, but how Judas is certainly not forgotten either. That's even become a noun in our culture. If you are called a Judas, what are you? You're a betrayer. Everybody understands that. His name lives in infamy and calls to the very mind the essence of betrayal, the essence of underhandedness, of selling for money. He is also remembered for what he's going to do and the moment that is taking place right here. We're going to notice how these two paths come crossing together as we now look at this next little paragraph in verse 12. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Have you ever asked yourself, why is that there? Why why go through all that? You know, go in there, go get prepared, okay, and then when you go, then it's going to be exactly as it is. And yep, it was exactly as it is, and there's another way. You've seen that before in the Gospel of Mark, though, haven't you? You have seen again and again this declaration that Jesus is fully in control of everything that is happening. There is no blind side that is about to go on. There is nothing that he's going to be surprised by. We saw this before, remember, when Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem. And where are we going to get this donkey? We'll go into the city and you're going to go find it right there. When the guy comes out and says, why are you taking my donkey? You will say the master of need of it and it will be okay. And he just lays it all out and it went exactly as Jesus said. Notice the same thing happens here. Where are we going to have this Passover? Well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go into the town. you're going to find this guy and you're going to say, the master needs to have the Passover. Where's the guest room? He's going to say, the guest room's right here. Check it out and here's where you can have it. Notice the whole idea is Jesus has full knowledge, full control. There is no way the gospel writers ever want you to think that the events that are unfolding in these last few chapters are somehow accidental or not according to plan or not according to the foreknowledge of God. In fact, you will notice that Jesus proves that in the very next line, verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table eating, just to visualize, here's your 12 apostles, your disciples that you've had. You're reclining around the table together. And Jesus says this, verse 18. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. That ruins a meal. There we are eating. It's Passover time. We're eating our meal. And Jesus just says, just want you to know something, Fellas. One of you who's here eating with me, one of you is going to betray me. It's hard to visualize the amount of weight that must have been added to the room after that happened. When Jesus says that, just imagine one of you You know, Jesus has been talking about betrayal. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over. And now he refines it a little bit more and says, you know what, it's actually going to be one of you. It's actually going to be one of you that's going to do it. And then you'll notice in verse 19, they begin to be sorrowful and say to Him one after another, is it I? Notice that it's a rhetorical denial. It is not a question of I don't know who it is. Do you think it's going to be me? It is a denial. Surely it's not me. It's not going to be me. I'm not doing that. Not I. And notice how it's worded there. They did that consecutively just imagine after Jesus says that and here they go around the room wouldn't surprise me if Peter started surely not I Andrew surely not I Thomas surely not I no way Lord no way and I want you to notice that it does say in there that they all said it each of them Judas, surely not I. <laughs> surely not I. Well, look at what Jesus says to that in verse 20. He said to them, it is one of the 12. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, I've misunderstood that for the longest time. When I've read that before, I'm pretty sure I taught it this way. I presume that the idea was simultaneously at that moment somebody was dipping bread in there and Jesus went in at the same time to identify to everybody who that one is and now I realize I was wrong in my understanding of that that's not right what that is is very much an expression it is an idea of the you are my closest companion He did that already a little bit. The one who is eating with me at the end of verse 18. And the idea of saying the one who is eating with me is it is my closest companion. It is one of the 12. It is one of you because you are all at the table and you are all dipping your bread into the soft. And it is definitely one of you. It is not somebody else. It is not an outsider. So it's nothing about the simultaneous at that very moment. That's why nobody knows who it is. That's why the other gospel accounts say when Judas leaves, they don't understand. It wasn't identified right there. All they know is Jesus is saying it's one of them. It's very much what the psalmist said. Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who I ate bread with, has lifted his heel against me. Even in our culture we have that somewhat that we eat with the closest companions even more so in ancient Near Eastern cultures, those who you sat down to the table with, those who you ate with, you were giving an indication of fellowship, approval, of love, of closeness, of intimacy. And the weight of what Jesus then is saying here is quite significant. Please picture somebody in your life who is your closest friend. And here is an individual who, for these 12 disciples, they have been with Jesus every day. For years, they have been with Jesus every day. Even those who are our closest friends that we might think of, you may not have been with them every single day if you had your buddies you know, in college or high school or whatever circle you ran with. Every single day, and they saw Jesus' miracles. All 12 of them saw Jesus teach the crowds and the multitudes. They heard His teachings. They saw the miracles. They were with Him. They were the inner circle. They saw amazing things. And here is Jesus revealing one of my closest friends, one of you who's sitting at the table. One of you who's been with me for years and has seen all that I've said and done. It's one of you who's going to do this. Surely not us, they say. Surely not me. I'd like for you to get a sense of the contrast that Mark has pulled together by bringing these two events together. Consider the picture of the woman. She is willing to spend it all for Jesus. In one picture, we get this beautiful image of a woman who is willing to expend her funds, give what she can to Jesus. Think about what she does. You know, she doesn't choose some cheap oil that's laying around the house. You know, I'm not going to use that one anyway. I don't like the smell of that. I'll bring that to Jesus. I'll use that one. No one will in the house will miss that. She has done what she could. She grabs perfume that is worth a year's wages and anoints the head of Jesus. She doesn't use it on herself. She gives it to Him. She gives all that she can. In seizing the opportunity to be with Jesus. And then there's Judas. One who will give up Jesus for anything. One will give anything for Jesus and the other will give up Jesus for anything. Whatever he can get. Mark doesn't record it here. We know it's the 30 shekels of silver. It's tough to put those things into modern times, but that should ballpark around a month's wages. So you get a contrast of the expending of a year's worth to be with Jesus for just a moment and one who will take in a month's worth To be done with Jesus and send him away. She's remembered for her devotion. And why would that be so critical? Because her devotion is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Why should her act be proclaimed with the gospel message? Because, friends, that's what the gospel is supposed to cause in the heart of every disciple. What can I give to my Lord? It doesn't matter what the cost is. It doesn't matter what you ask of me. It doesn't matter what I can possibly give. I will give it. That's the heart of a disciple. That's the heart that she's expressing. That's why Jesus says this event should be remembered and proclaimed with the gospel because this is everything to what it means to be walking with Jesus. This is everything for what it means. It's what it means to love Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves if we treasure Jesus so much that we would give something as extravagant as that. I think it is a phenomenal challenge to consider. If you could just put your salary in like a piece of paper... And would you just go, here you go, Jesus, because I want to spend time with you. That's what she does. She's expressing such a devotion. Would we give all that we have and do all we could do to be able to be with Jesus like she did? Or do we take what we can get instead of having Jesus? Just as Judas did. Friends, please think about this has been what Jesus has been going around the cities and countrysides preaching about the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field which a man found and covered up. And I've highlighted to you these three words highlighted again in his joy. He sells all that he has and buys that field. In his joy. Not in his begrudging obligation. Not in, well, I guess I need to do that. He joyfully gives all. Did she do this willingly? Absolutely. No one compelled her to do this. No one said... You know, woman, you should give that expensive ointment and perfume to Jesus and pour that on his head. Nobody said that. In fact, they all, said he, they all said she was crazy and scolded her for doing it. Nobody thought that was a good idea except Jesus because that's the nature of the kingdom. Notice as he continues, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls Who, on finding one pearl of great value. Went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's what she's doing. That's absolutely what she's doing. As I looked at this, I will ask you the hard question that I asked myself. What's our price to betray Jesus? What's the price? What's the price at which we would turn our back on him and turn him over to the world? It's easy to read this and be so amazed by Judas and think, how could you do that? How could you do it for so little? Just a mere few thousand dollars. How could you do that for so little? How could you do that when you've been with Jesus this long? How could you do that when you've heard the teachings? How could you do that when you see such devotion from this woman? And yet how easy it is for us to make a similar decision. When we put wealth, entertainment, anything else in the world ahead of our Lord and Savior. We put work ahead of him, school ahead of him, comfort ahead of him, ease ahead of him, hobbies ahead of him. We put all kinds of things ahead of him. What is more important to us than Jesus? That's ultimately what I think Mark is setting us up to ask ourselves. What ultimately is more important to us than Jesus? If Jesus were to say... Give me that. Is there something that you would say, no, I can't give you that. I won't offer that up. You're asking too much. The cost is too high. The price is too much. You're asking too much of me. It's so easy for us, especially in our culture and our day and time, to put pleasure and ease and wealth and comfort and schedules and career and all these things ahead. And we here can criticize Judas so easily. Oh, you would trade him for a few thousand dollars? Do we do so for far less? Do we do so for far less? Contrast of the heart of her devotion. I asked at the beginning something that we would cross back into. How was she able to do this? How is she able to do something like that? And I submit to you the answer is really quite simple. All that she's concerned about is Jesus. There's no indication that she's like, Boy, that just seems like a lot. I don't know if that's going to be worth it. It's really expensive. She just walks in. Here we go. Such a love for the Savior. To her, Jesus is worth everything. That's what's making the difference in the story. What makes the difference, why she does what she does, is that Jesus is absolutely everything to her. Her life was so significantly impacted by Jesus that the cost was nothing. Even though it was tens of thousands of dollars, He had impacted her life to such a degree that it didn't matter. The money was nothing. All that mattered was Him. And that's what she wanted. Jesus being greater than anything in life. And that is how we're supposed to look upon Him if we are disciples. Is that a disciple gives it all for Jesus. And a betrayer will give up Jesus for something else. That's the contrast of the story. A true disciple will give anything up. A betrayer will give him up for something else. But here's what I want you to think about that for a minute. Judas looked like a follower. Judas looked like a follower. When they're going around the table, nobody goes, Oh, I know it's Judas. (laughs) You know, 11 other guys, it's him, it's him. He's different than us. He acts very different. We know he's worldly. We've seen him in the way he acts. We know. Nobody knows. He looks like everybody else, he looks like a follower. Sometimes we want to paint the betrayer as obvious. Oh, somebody who would trade away Jesus like that, that you're talking about this morning. Oh, that's somebody really bad. That's the marginal Christian. That's the person who just attends on Sunday morning. That's the person who doesn't really care a whole lot. I challenge you on that. Judas is just like the rest. He looks just like him. He's behaving just like him. Nobody's pointing fingers at him and going, Oh, we know. When he ends up walking out, nobody goes, yeah, we knew it. He's doing it right now. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. See, you can look like a follower and be a betrayer. You can have all the externals look right. But at the end of the day, the big question is, are you going to be proven otherwise? Otherwise? Will we give up Jesus for something else? Will a better offer come along in our minds that we will treasure as more valuable and more important? Something else in this world, something else in this life has more worth to us than Jesus. And so when push comes to shove, when the moment of decision comes, we do not choose Jesus. We choose whatever it is that we treasure more. That's the way it always is in life. That's why Jesus says where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. You're going to choose what you treasure. And Judas does not treasure Jesus. He looks like he does. He seems to. But he doesn't. I want to end by just asking one simple question. There's a question that we need to consider for ourselves a question that we need to answer every day, a question that we need to answer when it comes to these kinds of decisions, when sin comes in front of us, when life decisions arrive, what's Jesus worth to you? Are you trading Jesus away for something right here, right now? Are you trading Jesus away for a moment of glory, a moment of pride, a moment of wealth, a moment of pleasure This is what are you trading him away for? Or do we treasure him as so infinitely valuable that we would never dare consider exchanging him for anything? Two individuals. Two who appear to be disciples. One has a heart that would be proclaimed with the gospel. And one would be remembered for the betrayal of Of the Savior, the Son of God. I hope you'll consider your life. And consider your heart. And consider what Jesus is worth to you. And if you have been trading Jesus for other things. Today is the day to rectify that. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to change. Today is the day to stop choosing things that are infinitely less valuable We look at that and go, Judas, 30 pieces of silver. How long did that last you? Not that long. Couldn't have. We trade Jesus again and again for such momentary things. Such valueless things. And we put in jeopardy our eternal souls. Can we help you turn back to the Lord? Lord and treasure him, to love him, follow him, and serve him. I love the picture. I told you verse 8, I think, is the key. She did what she could. What can you do for Jesus and the kingdom of God? What can you do to follow the Savior and to serve him and love him and show your devotion to him? What can you do? That's what Jesus calls you to do. Won't you come and enjoy the gospel message? Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?